Hi, unicorns. I'm big mountain skier and adventurer, Lindsay Dyer, and this is Showing Up, conversations in person with real-life humans making a life in the outdoors to inspire you to embrace your weird. Do that thing even if you're scared and you suck at it in order to fully show up for this one wild and precious life. You don't go to a cliff. You don't fall in love with a cliff. You don't see a cliff and you don't go to it. You're not gravitated towards it to find out if it's scary or not because it's a guarantee that it's scary. But can you transcend? Can you let the fear pass through you? Can you feel it? Can you use it? Can you steer it? Can you concentrate harder with the fear, you know, fueling that like critical concentration, you know? That was world record Cliff Sender, founder and owner of Discreet Clothing and environmental ambassador, Julian Carr. If you know anything about Julian, it's probably the number 210, the guesstimate at the height of his world record cliff jump on skis. But if that's all you know about Julian, you're definitely missing out. Just because a small cliff for him is around 50 feet, it doesn't mean that he's reckless. In fact, Julian's approach to these massive cliffs is methodical and almost spiritual, something you'll definitely be inspired by. That approach comes from parents who didn't limit him and let him get bruised up, jumping off neighborhood roofs as a kid. And they also instilled a love of learning poetry in the outdoors. But he also learned the hard way (laughs) and had a year to come back from serious injury. I talked to Julian about how if things were a little different, he might've followed in his father's footsteps as a computer scientist or else a snowboarder or a skateboarder. We'll also talk about his career and why and how he started Discreet. But the thing that I'm most excited to share with you is what it's truly like moment for moment to be over 200 feet in the air looking down without a parachute when you've sent it just a little too hard. You're gonna love this one. Enjoy. All right, so rolling. Coming at you from Niseko, Japan. High above the, this has gotta be that the highest hotel at a ski resort. Pretty sweet view. Thank you, Hyatt, for hooking us up with a room for a couple hours, a suite for to do our podcast. Okay, so let's start with your story. Yeah, you're obviously known for the world record ski jump, and of course we'll get there, but do you, I mean, do you attribute how you got there to your, your family? How do you, I mean, how do you go from a normal kid (laughs) to this guy who thinks that he can jump off 210 foot cliff? Yeah, I hear you. I think it was definitely the way I was raised. I was given a lot of freedom and, you know, we had a trampoline in our backyard and it was really bouncy. Oh, it's totally similar. Yeah. And (laughs) not, but we weren't told like, you know, we weren't monitored to like not get hurt a lot or not Mm. they weren't afraid for you kind of well they just i mean my parents just i think let me navigate my world and figure out my own parameters and you were the oldest my sister's older than me oh so you're the baby she's kind of cautious and wants to dip a toe before she does most things and i respect that and i've always been kind of the opposite you know and so it's been a really interesting relationship between her and i because yeah she's a little different than me but growing up you know, having a trampoline and figuring out the air awareness, I just loved it immediately. And I would like do a flip off the trampoline every single time I got off. Wow, and that's so, since I can remember walking, you know? And so that was thousands and so thousands So you taught yourself how to do a flip. Yeah. And at the same time, I was doing gymnastics up at the University of Utah okay. and going to, you know, countless uh sports teams and always playing either football basketball or soccer and skateboarding a ton and doing gymnastics and things like that and in gymnastics i hardly ever really learned the appropriate body mechanics for doing like a round off back full or something i was always screwing around the foam pits i was always like climbing in the rafters and finding a way to aim into the foam pit from the ceiling you know and (laughs) so for whatever reason I just loved air stuff and uh, I even had a neighborhood uh, roof jumping club and I was like in second grade and so I'd find all the neighborhood kids and we'd run around the neighborhood try to find 
like garage roofs that had like a, a slanted landing and we'd land <laughs> I called it a keto roll so we'd land and instantly do like cartwheels as soon as you landed and uh because yeah I love being in the air so you you didn't come up with a traditional ski background how'd you get how'd you bring all that to the skiing side <clears throat> I was camping a lot and going on giant hikes with my dad um where we'd wake up at sunrise and go hike for some obscure petroglyph that he'd read about in some like you know journal entry of some guy that he made his own like cairns and so we'd be doing these huge missions to find these obscure cairns and i just found that like breath the idea of traveling pretty good distances ever since i was tiny you know so growing up and doing all my team sports and all the air stuff was awesome but then once uh i got into fifth grade i tried snowboarding one day and the we had a lesson and a rental the, le the lesson started at noon and my mom was coming up to pick us up and my other friend's mom was dropping us off and we could only get dropped off around like 10 and so over and over again their parents told us wait until the lesson don't go until your lesson because we had two hours to kill and so we got dropped off 10 o'clock and it gets to be probably 10 30 and we're like oh let's just go let's go get a run so we go up the chairlift, I put on the snowboard at the top and start mobbing down and just crash and my knee blows up. At what age? Fifth grade. Ooh. And so Is that I'm, was that your first that time? That was my first time on snow. Oh my god. Yeah. And you you're still here? <laughs> and yeah, and so the uh I but I was like in fifth grade, I got an elevator key because the <laughs> I had to get crutches because I like pretty I sprayed my knee pretty good. And uh so my mom was a big skier and she was going like pretty much every weekend with her girlfriends. Um, and finally in eighth grade, my mom got me to go skiing with her. And it's just one of those things by, I think day three, I was paralleling, you know, pretty well and hauling ass down the groomers. I got pulled over by ski patrol on my third day for going too fast. And I just immediately, it clicked, you know? And uh, it's really weird because I look back at that day on a snowboard because I'm positive if I wouldn't have gotten hurt that day snowboarding, I would have for sure never skied. And who knows if I would have ever fell in love with snowboarding the way I did skiing, you know? Fascinating. Yeah. And so once I started skiing in eighth grade, I was used to skateboarding a ton and watching you know, skateboarders put together unique, creative, cool lines in a cityscape. But, you know, the freedom was uh, the full creativity to put together what you wanted to. So I instantly looked at all the features in the mountains and saw you can cruise around and do that's how skateboarders do and just put it all together how you want to with all the features that the mountain provides. And then once I felt powder, I was like, this is a foam pit. <laughs> and so I instantly was like, holy crap. This is like skateboarding and foam pit combined. In the like, natural environment. Whoa, yeah. Whoa. So that's been my perspective ever since then was the mountains are like an oversized gymnastics foam pit. That's yeah. awesome. So what advice would you give to young parents? It sounds like you, you had really good role models that didn't instill fear in you. It seems like this day and age, parents are so afraid <clears throat> for their kids and don't let them do things. And it's almost like, well, we don't want you to get hurt. What advice would you give to, you know, making sure that they're safe, but also creating that space where they, they really can believe that they can do anything and therefore be able to do anything, especially as a guy, right? Like yeah. you probably survived. I mean, I look back and I, I don't know how my parents did it because I never felt a disconnection with my parents. So I just feel like they knew me and I knew them and that we had this like, you know, unspoken agreement that I certainly was constantly spraining my fingers, getting stitches and all these things, but they didn't want to try to govern, like put a governor on my athletic exploratory like nature, even though it oftentimes ended in getting to the boundary, you know? So but were, were they, they trusted afraid for you or were they not? It sounds no, like trust. No, they is liked it. They, they, I think they really liked that in me. And they didn't want to take that away from me. I think, you know, they definitely had to deal with it. <laughs> but that's probably what parents' choices they have is either 
they can see that their child clearly loves pursuing life in a certain way. And I'm sure, you know, if you're an adult that loves your child, it's second nature. They're not going to try to stop them, you know? And so I think they just really watched me pretty closely and just realized, you know, for the most part, I was 99% of the time pulling off whatever I was trying to do. (laughs) Okay, so you just experienced, sounds like once you figured out this whole thing with with snow and as the massive bone pit, where did it go from there? Like what, at one point did you say like, I want to try to do this professionally? And I know you went to college too, so. Yeah. So basically, like I said, I immediately fell in love with skiing. I was like, I'm doing this forever. And that's at ninth grade? In eighth grade. Like the first few days, I mean, I was just like, this is, this is the thing. This is it, you know? And so I instantly knew I'd be skiing every day or as much as I could the rest of my life. Um, And then into high school, you know, I was only averaging maybe 30 days a year, but one of my good friends, uh, Rich Peterson, luckily, I uh, became friends with him in seventh grade, and he was such an amazing skier and comes from this amazing family, and they were such strong skiers, and mm-hmm. so I instantly fell in with just trying to keep up with Rich and his right. family. Yeah, and Rich, so, you guys had such a cool crew over there. Yeah, so him and I, on uh, our group of friends, you know, but Rich kind of being the, the central one, me and him, um, were skiing every single weekend in eighth and ninth in 10th grade. Yeah, can you talk a little bit more about this crew and then the guys that you were looking up to at that time? Yeah, so my high school crew, it was Rich Peterson, Brandon Kawakami, Scott Langland. That was kind of like our little nucleus. And still to this day, they're like the best athletes I know and like the most coordinated humans <laughs> and so smart that, like I said, I they'd been skiing their whole lives and I just had to fit in. Rich definitely set the example, but in eighth grade, right away, I went and saw like Warren Miller's Scott Schmidt story. And obviously Scott Schmidt also saw the mountains in the way I wanted to. And I didn't realize for the most part, it was just Scott skiing that way. What do you mean that way? Just cliffs and getting extreme Mm -hmm. because at that time it was, you know, predominantly the, the racing, you know, the free ride scene wasn't anything at that point it was maybe Glen Plake and Hatchup and the badass backcountry guys like Peyota and Trevor Peterson and stuff but Scott Schmidt obviously stood out as the cliff guy you know and so I thought tons of people were that was skiing to me mm-hmm. and so I started obviously going down that path and looked up to what Scott Schmidt was doing quite a bit you know mm-hmm. and yeah I look back at that time period is really really fun for me because the Going from learning in eighth grade to, you know, for the most part, keeping up and getting on almost to the same level as Rich within a couple of years shaped me as a skier because he's still like one of the most fundamentally sound skiers Yeah, and humble. Yeah. And Rich, for anyone who doesn't know, he's a guide at CPG up in Alaska and just still one of my best buds. That's so awesome. He's such a gem. Okay, so that's into high school. And then... Was it like, do I keep skiing or go to college, or were you always going to go to college? Ever since forever, my dad always just instilled that what you do after high school is college, and that he'd provide Mm -hmm. um, tuition for it. And so, you know, looking back, obviously I realized that's not what most people get, so obviously I'm very grateful for it. But yeah, I went to college immediately uh, after high school, and by then it was... You know, Johnny Mosley had done his famous 360 in the Olympics. Freeze Magazine was out. TGR and MSP were coming out with like Global Storming and High Life and Sixth Sense and all these amazing ski movies and this huge emergence of, uh, you know, the the Canadian guys like JP and Vincent and that crew. And it's just this awesome energy in skiing. And so that's right when I started going 70, 80 days a year, college full time and was like pretty determined to get in the mix you know and I remember one day I went skiing with like uh Gordy Pfeiffer and Dave Richards and Brent Moles and we're ripping around and you know they're all phenomenal skiers and it just really 
encouraged me because it was the same way with like skateboarding anytime I was around like really good or pro skateboarders I always like stepped up to the occasion I always wanted to do my best and mm-hmm. so you know when I met up with those guys and skied with them a bit I was like okay I'm gonna find a photographer and found an amateur photographer this guy Brian Kretschmar and he's awesome he's a school teacher and he wanted to try photography a little bit so we went out one day at Snowbird and just shot a couple cliffs and as soon as we got him back I was like oh yeah these look as cool as any shot I've ever seen in any magazine you know like it's on but you know learning the the landscape of professional skiing is the other half of you know if you're a decent athlete or have skills if you want to be a professional there's a lot of parameters you got to learn and luckily I, I found that the more I understood that aspect I liked it yeah so let's talk about that because people don't talk about that what did it take so okay so you're going to college full-time so you shot for the first time at 20 yeah and then so talk about the business side of what how you try to go pro so I, I was like what can I do you know and I was like all right I'm gonna get some photos Mm -hmm. and at the time there wasn't that many people that had their own websites so my dad and I built like my own website and I populated it with all these photos I'd gone out and shot and then I made like a manifesto basically like a mission statement of what my intentions were and figured out emails to a bunch of team managers and all that stuff you remember uh, what those intentions were I think it was just like you know Hey, my name's Julian Carr. I really love to ski. I want to get out there and, you know, align myself with a cool company and showcase your products through my endeavors and, you know, just pretty straightforward professional language, you know. Mm-hmm. I try to be as professional as possible. But I started sending out emails to marketing departments and team managers uh, and got responses because I knew that showing the initiative to have a website um, and I knew the photos were good so I just knew I'd get good response yeah, and it's great advice yeah and so I started getting uh, product sponsorships right away and so by the time I was 21 22 I had five or six product sponsorships and I was head down like going to ski conditioning in the fall uh, tons of yoga still going to gymnastics a lot and school full-time and to have health insurance I needed to be school year-round so I mean I was doing so much school and I was working five nights a week in a sports bar in downtown Salt Lake um so I mean I had a lot going on in that time period and I mean that was I didn't even have my own computer I had like a I guess I had a desktop at home but I didn't have a laptop or anything and I was just cranking constantly that's amazing so you were studying psychology at first why did you want to study psychology and then what made you decide to shift to economics? Um, I think I just find people and the way people think fascinating. Sure. And like what shapes people's own, like how to, I don't know, I just think psychology is interesting. It's sociology. Totally. Like groups of people, how to, like these consensus of strange mental understandings that shape society and people like individually I just thought it was fascinating anything you remember in particular that was not really I think the more I got into it the more I realized that I didn't want to be some like clinical psychologist or uh, anything like that so I was like man I'll do what my dad did so I tried computer science for two years and he even like tutored me and I would get half the stuff quite well, and then the other half I would just bang my head against. And I, then again, I was just like, man, I, I don't think I want to be a computer scientist. <laughs> and so ever since I was a little kid, I remember like my cat food, I would think of commercials. And whenever I'd be in like high school, I would see like certain living rooms that had this really cool lighting. And I'd be like, oh, that'd be a cool like fresh jive or stussy ad. You know, mm-hmm. so I, I always just had like a, an eye for, you know, marketing if you needed to find it. And yeah, so, and the aesthetics. Yeah, and yeah. so once I knew I didn't want to do computer science, I was like, man, I need to do business. And, you know, by then I'd probably already had enough hours to graduate. And wow, so, so that was four years? 
so far? Yeah, it took me six and a half years okay. of, I graduated with 164 hours. Almost so two degrees. <laughs> I have an unofficial master's degree. <laughs> but I didn't really care because I was skiing a ton. By then I just started up like the idea of discrete. Things were humming along, so. Yeah, so let's talk about that. Like what, how did you know you wanted to start a business so young? I, I remember just in college, I would doodle names of companies like a lot. Uh, I think just more out of create, creative, like creative boredom, I guess. But then once I started getting a little bit of nibbles on sponsorships and stuff or skiing, and I was watching and consuming like every ski publication and movie, I started seeing some of the, like, the icons of the sport phasing into their next part of their life. And, you know, some of them were kind of wasting away at a bar or going back to school or doing landscaping and stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But I was like, man, note to self, like your shelf life as an athlete is limited. So even if all these things come together for me as an athlete, you need to have something else going on that uh, can become a revenue stream. Um, so by the time your, your shelf life is up, you have something else going on. And so last class in computer science and the worst grade I ever got in college was discrete structures. It was computer science class. And <laughs> I would just, I just thought the word discrete was so cool because it's a double meaning and in computer science, it means like its own thing, you know, very uh, much its own entity. And, but a double meaning, meaning it's got the meaning that we're used to as well as this computer science yeah, meaning. Yeah, Amazing. Yeah. I don't think people know that. Yeah. And, Almost all of our products we name after computer science terminology. So I'll just open up a glossary and find cool words. And <laughs> it's funny because every once in a while I'll meet with dealers or whatever in the discrete world. And instantly they're like, oh man, all these product names are amazing. Computer <laughs> science is awesome. Well, hardly anybody notices, <laughs> but it's cool. Nice. Okay, so so you've always been this combination of business guy and skier guy. So, yeah, what's next? Yeah, I think... So like, at that, when did well, you start Well, I had hitting... a huge stumbling at, a, at, a, at that time period because um, I'd gotten these nibbles for skiing uh, for sponsors and I was skiing as well as I'd ever had my whole life. I was feeling so good on my skis. And I think I was like 22 or 23, maybe 24, but... Um, First day out this one year, I was like, I'm going to take over the world this year. <laughs> and day one, it had just snowed 100 inches in over Thanksgiving weekend and Snowbird opened. It was so good. Skiing around all day, never felt better on my skis my whole life. And skied this really technical double line and aced it. And then I came back to it later in the day after just skiing like a champion all day. <laughs> And dropped in on this highly technical double line again, but really didn't uh, concentrate on exactly what I needed to do because I kind of took it for granted because I'd already done it earlier. And as soon as I dropped in, I realized I just was slightly off, landed the first little cliff, not square, and started mm -hmm. going over the handlebars and didn't get any pop. And all of a sudden, the second little cliff band of technical rock is like passing underneath me because I'm in the air. And I try to like stretch out so that I will clear the rocks. I clip my, my hip into the last chunk of just this sharky, ugly, oh cliffy area. Cartwheel into the snow and I'm face down in the snow. And I'm like, oh, I just bruised my ass so bad. And I roll over onto my back and my leg is all the way up my body and my boot is up by my head. Oh, so I have this wet noodle of a leg with my boot up by my head oh, across no. my body up by my head. So I like grab my leg and put it down into the snow and try to just align it the way it needs to be aligned. And in that like three seconds, all I could think of was like, you might be paralyzed right now. And as soon as I realigned my leg, I was like, move your toes, move your toes. And I could. So I was like, big sigh of relief. And then I was like, okay, if you start getting like lightheaded right now, that's it. Because it means you definitely severed your 
femoral artery because oh you just gosh. blew up your leg, you know? And I didn't start losing consciousness. And I was like, okay, like, that's good. Oh. And uh, luckily within like 15 minutes, Snowbird had a doctor there and the patrol was there. And it, the whole process of that whole experience of, I mean, I shattered the femur in 11 pieces and it oh broke gosh. just an inch beneath where my femoral head goes into the hip socket. So all these little bone fragments missed my femoral artery by a millimeter. Like the doctor is just shocked, wow. you know? And uh, so I get emergency surgery the next morning and the process of rehabilitation for my leg and the amount of time and the dedication that I put into getting back to 100% from my femur break. It's strange because it provided me like this new like decision-making. It just made me make better decisions. From getting that hurt though, once I did start skiing again, I up to that point was like 99% guy and I would just go for anything and figure it out and usually would and have a few spectacular crashes here and there. 99% meaning like you'd pretty much pull it off. Yeah. And <laughs> if I, but then after that happened, I was like, okay, you need to be like 100% sure about mm. things before you drop in on stuff because you just found out what can happen if you don't really You mean like 100% sure you're capable or 100% sure it goes or what exactly Both. do you mean by that? Both. Just like think whatever you're about to do through A through Z you know, instead of just A through T. <laughs> mm -hmm. And because I think there are so many people that are just such amazing athletes and they're so athletic that they can get themselves into situations and they can rely on their quick instincts mm -hmm. to figure it out, figure it out in real time, pull it off. Mm -hmm. And obviously I think there's a lot of people that do that. Yeah, I think and we've all fine. been there sure. until we learn the hard way. Yeah. And so it just made me a better decision maker. But as I started getting back onto my skis and I, I was, you know, it was a hard conversation with myself, but I, I had a lot of resolve that, yeah, I definitely wanted to keep skiing and I wanted to keep going down that path of pursuing skiing you know okay. and so um, now you're like 24 25 yeah and like gra I graduated college and could just focus on skiing and um it was weird because pretty quickly around that time is when I started figuring out uh big cliffs and my leg injury weird as weird as it sounds uh actually enabled me quite a bit in that department <laughs> because through my promise to myself of needing to be 100% of uh, sure of what I was going to do, I would, I, I still remember like some of the first big cliffs I ever did. I, I thought them through so much that I just knew I would be okay. Wow. And I, I knew it A through Z Love and I it. just knew it. And so I was like, well, you made a promise to yourself that you know, you'd only do things if you're a hundred percent. So if you don't do this, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice because mm -hmm. you haven't figured out you can do this, you know? And so it was kind of cool. It gave me that, that kind of protocol that helped me navigate big cliffs in a safe manner because I needed to be, I'd already developed this crazy relationship, uh, intimate relationship with consequences, you know, mm -hmm. and it, I didn't want to have to deal with that ever again. So walk us through the day that you showed up in Engelberg and saw this cliff speaking to you when most people are like, you, you wouldn't even consider it. it it's, it's so crazy to me that you can look up at a mountain and be like, Oh, I could hit that 200 footer. Uh, and yeah. So walk us through what that process was like. And, and obviously that wasn't your first big cliff. Um, so maybe like build us up to how, how that one came to be. Um, so when I was graduating college, focusing on skiing, uh, Jamie Pierre was like in every mm -hmm. TGR movie and every magazine. And he was from Utah also. Yeah. And he was routinely hitting, uh, cliffs that were a hundred feet and bigger and the only guy doing it. Mm -hmm. And I was just, for some reason, I was just so fascinated with 
how he'd gotten this cheat code to do it. Like, how did he crack the code? Like, why is he, how did he, how's he doing this? And obviously it was terrifying to think about it. And anytime you're around a big cliff, it was way too intense just to even get near the edge, you know? Yeah. And I just would watch his movie segments. Uh, the, one of the really, one of the most coolest cliffs he, he envisioned, found and did was this really cool one up in, uh, Wolverine Cirque in Utah and it's you know depending on the snow year it's anywhere from like 110 to 170 feet and uh, I went up there that summer and went to the takeoff meditated on the takeoff studied the horizon points and just tried to absorb that space the headspace to be up there and uh, just to like think of what he must be feeling and going through to be in that area. Just, so I just wanted to be on top of a cliff that he'd done and just feel it, feel what it felt like to be up there. Um, and so the next winter came around and it was a, a really big winter and I was able to hit that cliff four times. I did a front <laughs> flip, uh, a back flip, a straight air and a big spread eagle. <laughs> And wow. that year was so amazing because it snowed a lot. Like Utah had one of the biggest winters ever. I think that was like oh five oh six. And actually, I'll rewind just a little bit more. I was stuck in the fifty foot range like my whole life with cliffs. And yeah, then it's I, so small. Well, <laughs> that's what I mean. Fifty feet is still big. When I had a seventy footer, I was like. It hurt so bad. I was like, I'm not doing that again. And I, I think about you and I'm like, I don't understand. Because, yeah, it hurts. I mean, I guess unless you land the way that you're landing. Yeah. I mean, 50 feet is still huge. Even It's huge, yeah. To this day, whenever I go to like a big swimming pool facility and they have the platforms, mm -hmm. like the top platform is 33 feet. And yeah. when you're up there, it's big. Yeah. So I think, you know, also most people... When they say they hit like a 50 footer, I'm like, uh, it's probably 30 footer because mm -hmm. 30 feet's huge, mm -hmm. you know? 50 feet's massive. And yeah. uh, so, anyway, I was used to my ceiling was a 50 footer. And to go any bigger was just like, I didn't get it, you know? But I was so committed to figuring it out. And after studying and meditating and. Talk about, like, it, you talk about meditating. Like, how did you use meditation to. I really Crack just tried to calm my mind when I'm when I was on top of even a fifty footer or in the summertime when I go stand on top of like that cliff in Wolverine. I would just try I would just close my eyes or just breathe and try to calm it all down and not try to force an expectation or like try not to force the current of my thoughts. I really just wanted to absorb the energy of being there and like what lessons, what energy can I extract or what can pass through me up here? I just wanted to feel the energy of the location, sure. you know, and not try to force anything. I just wanted to try absorb to absorb it. and become, yeah, yeah. become it, you know, and uh, that has a lot of power that um, I'm glad I put energy into. Did anyone teach you that or did you just... Nope, just, just did it. It felt mm -hmm. right. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, so the next winter... I had, uh, I was out uh, on Cardiff, Cardiff Pass, and I was shooting with Adam Clark and Rob Holmes, of all people, mm -hmm. and because uh, he was the one that did that amazing uh, lawn dart front flip off uh, Glory Hole Cliff. It was a sequence in Powder Magazine in like probably 1999, but it was like Is he related to JT? No. It's really bizarre, but he did this amazing front flip. 110 footer or so that was the sequence in powder mag in a shooting gallery shot and it was one of the first photos of like a big air that everyone was like whoa because mm -hmm. this guy just went to the next level beyond you know what some of the og cliff jumpers had done like chuck patterson and john tremaine and some of those guys but um he kind of opened up that conversation again with that photo so i'm up there i find this 80 footer and how do you even <laughs> measure these things? Uh, I think it's uh, just have spent so much time out there that a lot, a lot of it's a guesstimation. Yeah. And 
oftentimes I underestimate how big things are. Mm -hmm. I still remember I was on a big Lake Powell trip with a ton of friends in college and we were on houseboats hanging out, doing our thing. And then one day we're going to go cliff jumping. And I was with this big friend group uh, of a girl I was dating at the time. So I didn't know any of these guys. And they, we go to go cliff jumping. I didn't tell anybody I was into that kind of stuff. And uh, I didn't really know anybody. They didn't know me. But finally the day came to go cliff jumping. Um, and <laughs> so I'm like first out of the boat. I run up this this cliff and kind of the two alpha dudes that had been the guys the whole trip <laughs> they're coming up right behind me and I just look one I look over the edge and back up and they come up and they're like you're gonna go from here and I just like ran three steps and did this big gainer but uh swam to the boats one other guy jumped it you know waving his arms like crazy the other guy ended up not jumping it and he was like tail between his legs the rest of the trip it felt kind of bad but um I thought the cliff would be maybe 50 feet and then they measured it with a rope and all that and it was 80 feet. So, so, I was like, okay. so the world record <laughs> cliff jump could be 250 <laughs> knows, or yeah. 270. Exactly. Oh my But Lord. I'd rather understate things than overstate them, right? That's clearly yeah. something about you. You're very, you're quiet and you've got this wise error to you which is oh, why of course i would want to get you on the podcast <laughs> share thanks. the share the knowledge but so this 80 footer we're in cardiff and I, I look off this cliff and it's way bigger than anything i'd ever done and instantly i wanted to get off of it all those feelings of being scared and it could hurt and mm. you could die and all these emotions that we all feel anytime you get on top of a cliff they all flooded me and I was like, oh, next time, next time. And then right then I was like, it's always going to be next time. I'm like, the snow is super deep. You can spend a little bit of time on this takeoff and figure it out. This is what you've like set your mind to. It's now, right now. It's now. There is no later, like now. But a lot of people would say, no, those are the things you need to, you know, when you get that not today feeling, you need to listen to it. You so do, but you need to allow yourself to see if you're just scared for fear's sake mm -hmm. and see if you can think through to the possibilities instead of just obeying fear, you know? And that's what I chose to do. And I guess that's like the path I've been on since um, is that you don't go to a cliff. You don't fall in love with a cliff. You don't see a cliff and you don't go to it. You're not gravitated towards it to find out if it's scary or not. Because it's a guarantee that it's yeah. scary. Mm -hmm. But can you transcend? Can you let the fear pass through you? Can you feel it? Can you use it? Can you steer it? Can you concentrate harder with the fear, you know, fueling that like critical concentration, you know? But at what time do you know that it's wrong? You know what I mean? So for I totally get what you're saying. If you can... If you can do the work, the pre-planning, uh, yeah. wait, what is this? The seven piece. <laughs> the prior planning prior, prevents piss poor performance. Prior proper planning prevents piss poor performance. <laughs> <laughs> Wisdom. Yes. Um, but yeah, like talk about the difference between you know it's you can push through fear versus yeah. it's good to step down from this totally. one. Well, when I chattered my femur and I started coming back, I was like, if even a hair on your body ever isn't 100%, you walk away okay. every time. And so I've uh, quite a few times fallen in love with cliffs that didn't work out, uh, either because of something obvious with the snow quality or the landing or the takeoff or the sheerness or something. Uh, but sometimes all those things actually looked good and just something in me still didn't feel right so I walk away um so and what's the difference between fear and something doesn't feel right for people who might be like trying to figure this out well I think each person needs to develop that like self uh internal dialogue and know how to talk with themselves yeah in a I mean, way for that me, makes sense I I would say if I it was always the first instinct. So if I looked up at the mountain and the first thing I saw and I got like just a hair of excitement, 
I knew it was speaking to me. And, and then right behind that, all my questioning would come, all my doubts, all my, like you said, the fear. But, um, but that's what I tried to listen to was like, well, that, there's a hint of excitement or fun or you know, whatever that feeling is. Would you, would, can you, would you agree with that um, as far as <clears throat> trying to develop that sense? I think when, if there's actual danger, it's going to be evident either in your own like body frequencies picking up on it or because it's super obvious. And so, uh, like that 80 footer that I found, I decided not to just bail right away. I was like, no, just at least stand up here and breathe through this fear for a minute and see if this fear is here for a reason or just because it's scary to be up here and this will be your first time actually pursuing a cliff that's really big, you gotcha. know? Okay. And so once I did essentially meditate on it, I found that there was clarity beyond the fear and I was happy in that moment that I decided to try to breathe through it and even to this day, that's just like protocol now mm-hmm. is that if I find a really cool cliff, I'll, I'll seek it. And it's always scary every time and I'll breathe through it. And, you know, if I've, if, if I already found the cliff and I've already been skiing in the area quite a bit, and usually it's on a film project or photography project where I've already been skiing developing a relationship with the snow content and the quality of the snow and feeling the layers in it all. So it's not like I go to a cliff cold and don't already have like some kind of relationship with it. Like how did I discover it, you know, and how do I know the landing, you know, and and all these things that take this strange accumulation of mountain IQ, you know, but I've ever (laughs) since being a little kid of walking for, 15 hours and just developing those senses that you develop when you're in the mountains a lot all of it my whole lifetime has developed these senses of traveling in the mountains you know and I love the high alpine I love the high alpine and I love snow I love I'm like if I could do anything in the world I just go powder skiing (laughs) but when you're skiing deep pow typically what's around you find some cliffs Mm -hmm. and so Skiing Deep Pow, the byproduct, is this cliff obsession or fascination or strange little skill set I've developed, you know? Yeah, so talk about, like, what what is the motivation? What is the, um, what's the thing that you're looking forward to that gets you through the fear? Um, it's a, it's a, it's a process, you know, and it's different for every cliff, but the end result is always the same. And it's absolute, pure, and undeniable uh, confidence. Mm-hmm. That, that fear, the genuine fear, literally through meditation and hyper-awareness, gets 100% converted into absolute confidence. Because I love being healthy. I've, I've been so hurt that I know what it's like to be hurt and I love life. I don't want to do anything that's going to play jeopardy with my life, you know? And so to be 100% certain of something that, uh, looks and I know could be so devastating to your health, it takes a lot out of me to apply myself to find that absolute clarity. And so... Um, by the time I'm up on a cliff and I meditate and I, I focus on the cliff, I focus on the landing, I'm in the landing, you know, oftentimes either in the summertime or the weeks or the days leading up to the day I actually do it. I will have spent so much time meditating on that cliff in all aspects of it, the landing, the sheerness, the takeoff, how I feel you know, the cosmos at large, that by the time I have that pure transcendence, I'm not, I've already lived it, Mm -hmm. you know, I've visualized it so intensely Mm -hmm. and so genuinely that, like I said, if even a hair on my body isn't completely converted into absolute confidence, 
then I walk away. And, you know, luckily I've travel in the mountains in the winter enough that I put myself in positions that these amazing experiences can happen and they do. And the fact that I can say I've jumped a cliff that's over 200 feet is totally insane when you say it. Yeah. But when I lived it, when I applied all my, you know, sensitivities and skills on skis and decision-making in the mountains into something like that, it becomes such an act of artistry for me. And uh, that's why I love it so much because I put all this intent and all this love into these projects. And I feel like because I have the right intent and because... I actually do feel fear a lot, but I convert it and I apply it and I meditate and become aware of everything. I, I've become a non-thinking, like human almost, because I'm so in tune with what I'm doing. Yeah, and I always visualize like, uh, like everything's interconnected through like a rich spectrum of like electromagnetic like energy, and so when I'm in that moment, when I'm like flying through the sky, I don't feel disconnected from the takeoff or the landing. I already feel like I'm in this web of energy that the air is sharing with the snow, with the cliff, with the trees, everything around me in my skis and my body and my heart and my mind. And I'm just a part of the energy spectrum at that moment. And it's weird though, because I'm I have enough time in the air that I have conscious thoughts going in and out of my brain yeah. and I'm executing something physical too. So it's like a really interesting, uh, life experience that you feel when you do these things. Um, but, and it sounds crazy too, but they don't hurt, you know, like I'm so relaxed and I have such a way of doing it that, you know, it's a non-impact and I, I don't feel a thing, sure. you know? And I think part of that is because of the, meditation that I apply and the relaxation that um, I embody when I do it and it's even so strange for me because I'll see photos or video of it afterwards and I'm like that is so crazy but mm -hmm. when I'm when I'm doing it it is a simple two plus two equals four equation like yeah I that know I can do it sense. yeah thank you for that mm -hmm. um <clears throat> I want to come back with one more question about it but do you feel like it uh, it translates to business. Can you get that same experience? Because you're obviously taking risks on the business side, and um, you know, could people apply this in other aspects? <laughs> For sure, uh, it's the same thing with business life in general. Is if you try to think of more perspectives than just your own, and really know what you're landing in, you know, before you proceed with anything in business or, or life, it's definitely helped me become a better decision maker, just personally and professionally discreet or circ series or skiing. Yeah, I, I loved what you said about the fact that it is all interconnected. And if you can feel that ahead of time, it almost builds the path, uh, especially in business. You don't necessarily think about your landing, like you said. Um, and if you've already done all the all that work and you're already in that flow of course it can come but I mean is it transferable I mean you're really doing it so I can romanticize about it but like <laughs> well it's not like I sit there before a decision in life and breathe and meditate and well it's because it's not life or death right? hour, yeah. but so, maybe if you did <laughs> I know I don't think it'd be a bad practice for anything but mm -hmm. uh I can say that when I go out skiing each day, it's not like I apply that same protocol to The consequences skiing. aren't as big. Yeah, you just kind of go ski. And I think that's why everyone loves skiing is that you do have a lot of moments of being present. Mm -hmm. And that's why skiing is so much fun because you're present. And there's not many activities, especially in like business and stuff, where you get forced to be present, mm -hmm. you know? And... And that's why people get tripped up in life because, you know, it's, you're so in this strange occupation of mind that it's not really the way humans are built to be in a lot of ways, you know? 
But I, I think the other part that, uh, as I'm listening, I think that massive consequence is what gives you the discipline of that focus and ultimate presence. And if you could discipline yourself to have it in other aspects of your life, then you could absolutely resonate with like the biggest thing that you could ever even imagine and beyond. Oh yeah. Well, I think that's not necessarily in the physical. When you're doing a big cliff, there's so many ways you could get hurt. Right. Countless ways. Right. But there's one way to do it right. Yeah. And so I think that for sure applies if you could strip it all down to business or life in general is that there are countless ways you can get tripped up and there's definitely one way to do it right. And if you can put energy into doing it right, that's awesome. Cause I remember even one year for a, um, a new year's resolution. I was like, I'm not going to bat. I'm not going to say anything bad about anybody ever. Love it. And it, you know, it's so easy to get tripped up and get off the path. But you're not being like productive at all for your own well-being or others if you're saying bad things about people. And so I think that's just there's a path you can get on of how to achieve things, whether you want to just conduct yourself in a certain manner or go out and accomplish goals or set intentions or whatever. It's like just focus on that path of execution. Be aware of all the countless ways that things can go wrong because that's certainly part of my protocol of cliffs is like, I try to think from every perspective. I think about all the ways it could go wrong, but I really just focus and execute and breathe life and manifest the path of of success. Thanks so much for listening, friends. If you enjoyed the conversation, give us a review on iTunes and help spread the word and make sure to subscribe. Next week, I'll continue my talk with Julian, and we'll get more into his time in Austria and that world record-setting jump. Our theme is Wings by Nikola Halaitis and used under the Creative Commons license. Until then, see you in the mountains, unicorns.